Hello, welcome to this Speed Listen installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast, featuring everything you need to know about Western writer Arnold Hanno, author of the iconic The Last Notch, among other Westerns, all in under 15 minutes, give or take. I'm Paul Bishop. My compadre Richard Prosh and I co-host the full-length episodes of the Six Gun Justice podcast, but I ride solo for these Speed Listen bonus installments. We've spoken about Arnold Hanno on the podcast several times, specifically during our Noir on the Range episode. A legendary writer of such Noir westerns as The Last Notch and Flint, he was a longtime editor at Bantam Books, working directly with western icon Luke Short and others. He was also the first editor-in-chief for Lion Books in the 1950s, where he edited and guided the careers of Jim Thompson, Richard Matheson, David Goodis, and others. Since that episode ran, I was asked by Greg Shepard, the head honcho at Starkhouse Books, to write an introduction for an upcoming anthology collecting two of Hanno's westerns, Manhunter and Slade. In discussing the introduction, Greg told me Hanno was still alive, but was somewhere in his late 90s. I asked Greg if he had a way to contact Hanno, and he provided me with an email and wished me good luck. I was fortunately able to make contact with Hanno, who turns 99 this coming March. A self-proclaimed Luddite, he agreed to allow me to record a telephonic interview with him, which accounts for the rather tinny sound of what follows. Hello, Arnold. It's an honor to be able to talk with you today. I tell you, if somebody, if anybody to talk to me, because I ain't going to be around that much longer. <laughs> anyway, here I am. You got me now. I'm not very good anymore. So anyway, here, here I am. Use me as you can, and I'll do my best. But I have to tell you, I don't think I'm going to be very successful. Let's just go. You're going to be fine. When did you first get the idea you wanted to write? Oh, uh, seriously, when I was eight years old, my brother, he and a neighbor boy, they were 11, 12 years old, put out a Montgomery Avenue, that was the street we lived on, then they grabbed newspaper, and they said I could be their reporter. And that meant I would run down to the newsstand at the end of the block and read the whole news and then copy off enough of the stuff that I could adapt then to Montgomery Avenue. So that was eight years old. That's fantastic. Where were you living at the time? In the Bronx. You were born in the Bronx? I was born in, in Manhattan in, in Washington Heights. And when we were four years old, we moved across the Harlem River from Manhattan into the Bronx. So from being an eight-year-old reporter, what was your next step? My next step was after I copied off enough other stories and made them fit the newspaper. I said to my brother, I don't like this. I don't like doing other people's stories. I want to do my own story. He said, write it. So I started a serial novel with a police officer as a hero who would fall to his knees when he shot the bad guys. I called the whole thing Sitting Bull, and I went on. Each episode would end with him facing imminent danger or death, like he'd be tied to the trolley tracks and the trolley car would be coming down, or he'd be hanging from a roof by his fingertips, and the bad guys were stamping on his fingers, stuff like that. And I did that for about, I don't remember now, but I would say about six episodes, and either I pooped out or the newspaper pooped out, and that was the end of that. For being so young, where did you learn to do cliffhanger chapters? Were you a reader? Oh, I tell you, my mother's brother, Bertram, was my screenwriter when he was 19. And he was writing Perils of Pauline 15-episode serials. 
he would send copies to my folks. He had been sent out to Hollywood living in some fancy schmancy street. And we were very thrilled by all that. And I was thrilled to see how somebody did something like that. Each episode, he would solve it the next morning or the next day. So that was how I did it. Also, I had reading when I was three, and I was reading everything. I read absolutely everything. I read all the baseball Joes and the Bomber the Jungle Boy and Tom Swift, and then I graduated to Huckleberry Finn and Treasure Island and good, good stuff. I think from the beginning, it was meant that I would be, end up writing. When I went to grade school, I was smarter than most of the other kids because I could read and write. And so I would skip grades. I was not quite 18, I think, when I finished college. I skipped all these all these intermediate grades. I thought I was going to become a doctor. So I'm taking these science classes and I'm doing very terribly. And then in my sophomore year, I went past the newspaper office. And I could hear inside people were laughing. And I thought, gee, I didn't know you were allowed to laugh. So I opened the door and I went in and I became a member of the staff of the local newspaper. And I changed my majors from science to English and journalism. And that was my sophomore year. In my junior year, I was the fourth editor of the paper. And my senior year, I was with another guy, co-editor-in-chief of the newspaper. You're very well known for your baseball reporting and your baseball books, and you're revered in that arena. How did your love of baseball start? My brother was three and a half years older, and he would be the captain of teams, and he would throw that I could play the game, and he would include me with these other kids. When they were 18, I was 15, but I was playing with them even into semi-pro games. That was one thing. And the other thing was, when I was born, we lived across the street from the polo grounds. Giant and Yankees played there until 1923. And so I went to the polo grounds to see Babe Ruth play some early game, and I was hooked. Back in those days, when a game was over, you were allowed to run out of the field. My brother and I would run the bases. I'd slide into second base. I'd get up and run to third and slide into home. Or I'd stand on the mound and think I was striking out Lou Gehrig, Jimmy Fox, or those guys. So it was the most exciting thing of my life, going to ball games. That's fantastic. What a great memory of those days. It remains a great memory. I still see myself maybe eight or ten years old standing on the mound of the polo grounds. I'd watch Carl Hubble throw screwballs, thinking I was going to throw a screwball past Garrett or Fox. When I finished college, I answered an ad in the newspaper for copy voice of the Daily News. I didn't know they hired that way, but there was the ad. So I answered the ad, and the six or seven of us interviewed to be a copy boy. Anyway, I answered the ad and was selected over the six or seven, including one guy from Harvard. I once said to the city manager, gee, that was pretty nice, selecting me over Harvard. He said, we selected you because you were the youngest, and therefore we thought you'd be drafted. So that's how I got my job as a copy boy at the Daily News for $16 a week. One day a week, we would be called junior reporters. I think other world, we're called Cubs. But we were doing small stories or going out on a story and phoning in the story to the rewrite desk, things like that. So I was writing some, not much, and I wasn't very good at it, but I was learning. So that part was good. My brother and I, in 1941, after December 7th, we were excited about joining the military and then killing Hitler, things like that. 
So the two of us lived at the supper table would argue about who was going to go where, and my folks would fall silent. War is cruel to parents. People don't realize how cruel it is to parents. Here were four people sitting in the kitchen on four chairs, and suddenly two of those chairs are going to be empty. It's a terrible world. That's what happened. I, I got into the Army in the 7th Infantry Division and the Pacific. We did island hopping. I did a little bit of writing on my own. When I was on a troop transport, I saw that the captain who was giving out papers, I could see there were mimeographs. I said, you've got a mimeograph machine someplace on the ship. He said, that's right. I said, if you lend that to me, I could get a newspaper done. I could get to the staff and we could put out a newspaper for the thousand troops we have here. He said, you really can? I said, give it a shot. So he did. He made me grab this machine. I found a guy who could write some very funny poems. I found other guys who could write. And, and, and we put out newspapers from San Francisco to the island of Atu. We were reading and writing. That's incredible. Writing was definitely in your makeup. It was, yes. I mind that I'm not writing a lot these days. That bothers me. Did you write short stories first or did you go straight to novels? Much- short stories. Some of them appeared in Ellery Queen magazine. One story appeared in Esquire. One lengthy novelette that appeared in Argosy. It was quite good, I think. So people tell me it was good. That one was called O'Rourke, the name of the main character, O'Rourke. And it was about a nasty recruit who falls under the hands of a sadistic sergeant who thinks he can turn him into a good soldier. Ran about 18,000, 20,000 words, and obviously loved it. So that was good. That was $1,500 back then. I was rich. That was a lot of money back then, and Argosy was a top market. It was a top market. And one of the editors there was rather young, and he said, This is the best thing Argosy has ever published. He didn't realize that Hemingway had written for Argosy. Wow. And, and other writers of that quality had. So that was flattering, although pointless. And then you moved from short stories into novels? My first novel was The Big Out, a baseball novel. You probably don't know that. I do know The Big Out because I have it on my shelf. You do? I oh, do. That's nice. When it came out, it perished quietly. There were no reviews or anything. And then six months after it had been out, a reviewer in the New York Times on the said that The Big Out is one of the most thrilling sports novels this reviewer has ever read. Now, that would have made for a nice ad when the book came out. But by this time, the book was already dead. So anyway, that's now people like it today. That surprises me. It's pretty good. It really is a mirror to the times when it was written. And I think that's important yeah. and makes it hold up. Yeah, yes, yes. Somebody wrote recently that this is the best baseball novel ever written. And I include, he said, Bernard Malamud's The Natural. That was pretty heady for me, because I think Malibu was a great writer, and so that was nice. That's quite the compliment. It was. It was. I still like compliments. I'm complimented that you want to do this interview. (laughs) When did you first decide to take a shot at a Western? One Friday night, Bonnie and I were going to go out to somebody else's house to supper or something like that in Manhattan. She takes forever in the bathroom. So I sat down with a typewriter, and I typed the year 18... 74 was a mean year, but I think well of it. Then I looked at it and thought, what the hell does that mean? Why was it a mean year, and why would he think well of it? So I wrote a second sentence. By the time she came out of the bathroom, I'd written six pages. I wrote 40 pages on Saturday, 40 more pages on Sunday, 
I wrote an hour every day during the week because I was working nine to five, uh, and then again on Saturday, and the novel was over. It was a Western novel. Now, I had not read many Westerns before that. I read a couple of Zane Grays, and when I got a job with Bantam Book, I became their Western editor. I knew about what a Western had to be. When you were working at Bantam, was Luke Short writing for them at that time? He was writing for me, my favorite Western writer. Did How did you know Luke Short? He's one of those mainstays in the Western genre. If you know the genre, we have to know where it came from. And, of course, yeah. Luke Short led into Louis L'Amour taking over from him. And Luke Short and Peter Dawson, the two were very important. Luke Short was a wonderful storyteller, and Peter Dawson was a wonderful stylist. They worked together well. And I learned a lot. From Luke Short, I learned that a Western had to have a Western theme. It has to be a novel about rustling or branding or land control or water rights or things like that. Did you know Luke Short personally? Never met him. Just dealt with him as an editor. That's right. I was so flattered that I could be his editor that I think I just gave him his head and let him do as he pleased. When you started writing your own westerns, you really have a dark, noirish turn to them. Mention that. Let me just say this briefly. I never even used the word noir. I knew noir was a French word for night and black. That was my knowledge of noir. I did not know that I was writing it. The Last Notch and the Flint, dark, pretty dark, especially Flint, which is my favorite. It was a copy of Jim Thompson's Savage Night. I said to Jim, would you mind if I took your novel and set it back 100 years? He said, be my guest. I did, and he read it, and he said, your version is better than mine, which was very flattering. You were editing Jim Thompson when you were with Lion Books. I didn't know Jim Thompson, but Jim Bryans, who was my associate, had read some of Jim's hardcover novels. So he got in touch with Thompson's agent. He told me about it, and he said, bring him to the office. Meanwhile, Jim and I would write synopses of novels we would like to see as part of the Bantamook list. So one day they brought Jim Thompson to the office. We showed these synopses to Jim Thompson. He read them through, and he went back and read them again, and then he tapped the first one. He said, I'll try this one. And he did that the game, The uh, Killer, Killer Inside me. me. Yeah, wonderful. So that, that was my introduction to Jim Thompson. And we became personal friends. Jim and his wife, Alberta, Bonnie and I would supper together. The trick was to keep Jim from drinking. The mistake Jim made was listening to whoever it was. He said, come out west and write movies for me. So he went out there and he wrote movies. And he didn't realize that you wrote them. And a whole gang of people got on your thing might get lost in the process. It really was the end of Jim Thompson. He started to drink again, and it didn't work. Manhunter, as a Western novel, where did that come from? Was that an idea you just started with, or did you just start writing? I don't know how that came about. I just wrote Manhunter and Slay. They're okay, Western novel. When you were writing, do you struggle as a writer, or does it just come to you? I think more comes to me, and I believe strongly with what a book review editor once told a class of mine. He said, let the writing write the writer, and I found that at a certain point in almost anything I write, if I relax, the writing continues, and I have practically no control over it, and it's just what I wanted. In everything I've written that's any good, there is that in it. You've got to direct everything and plot it on, but there is always that, that quality in it someplace. 
I think of a character had a problem without any idea how I was going to solve it. And then I let them think we'll see from there. The very best thing I ever wrote was a short story for Ellery Queen. 1953, I believe, as the created outpost one. I'm proud of that story. How long have you and Bonnie been married? It'll be 70 years in June. Where did you guys meet? Met at Bantam Books. She worked in the business office. She and two or three other young women from the business office came prouncing one day to see the editors because the two buildings had merged into one. Before that, the editorial office and the business office were separate. Now they were merged into one building, and they came down to see who the editors were. And I saw Bonnie and was lost at first sight. <laughs> it was pretty hot. Anyway. That's an amazing story. 70 years to be together and still in love. That's a wonderful thing. <laughs> I think taking, they, we don't use the word love. We say we take care of each other. That's very wonderful. She's finishing her second round of ovarian cancer, and I just found out that I have cancer, so we take care of each other as well as we can do it. I hope you continue to do that for a very long time. Thank you. Now, I'll be 99 on March 2nd. That's a goal. After that, people say, I suppose you're aiming at 100, and I tell them, I'm aiming at next Thursday. <laughs> You've been alive for almost 100 years. What have you seen change in the writing market over the years? It's not the market that I knew. In those days, there were agents and editors, and you work with one to the other or both. Editors were important folks. Today, I think an editor just finds the back of an envelope and hands over the money. I don't know quite how it works anymore. In the old days, publishing was pretty interesting and heady. I thought it was exciting. Today, I don't think that's true anymore, but I may be wrong. As an editor, I was a little different. I'm fast in mean, almost everything I did back then. If you gave me a novel over the transom, I would take it home that night and read it that night and report back to you the next morning. And that helped me at Lion Books in particular. I would say to somebody, I like this, can you get me 10,000 words by, you know, and we'd make a date. And I would immediately put the $2,000 for the writer into the commerce of the publishing house. And so these people started thinking, this is an editor who pays his writers and does quickly. So I was getting writers, young writers in particular. I don't know whether editors today have any say in publishing. At the money end of things rather than the literary end of things. I think that's terribly unfair. I think that's very true. At Bantam, I was reading Publishers Weekly every week. And one week there was a big one-page ad for a novel called The Golden Sweep. And at the top of the ad it said, By the author of The Chinese Room. This is 1947, I think. I never heard of The Chinese Room. And then I thought, it must have come out during the war. So I got hold of a, a book from O'Malley's Bookstore, which is an institution that has come and gone. It was a great institution. You could get any book published by anybody at any time for a couple of bucks. And I said, can you get me a copy of The Chinese Room by Vivian Connell? And they said, oh yeah, sure. It's up on the third shelf over here to the left. The guy went up and two and a half bucks I had The Chinese Room. I read it that night and I said to Ian Valentine the next morning, I have your first million copy dollar. Bantam Books had never sold a million copies of any one title. And Ian Valentine looked at all scans. 
He said, I'm going to have a haircut today. And he took the book with him to the barber. And he came back and said, you're right. And eventually we got around to publishing it. And when I saw the finished product with the cover and everything, I said, this will sell 3 million copies. It sold 4 million. Then got to meet very few writers when I was at Bantam. I'd worked with Scott Meredith before that, and I got to meet some writers that way. P.G. Wodehouse and Evan Hunter. Ed McBain, who did the Black Boy Jungle. I got to know people that way. And I think the Ed McBain books were just absolutely wonderful. I happened to Lawrence Block even better. I remember telling him once that I thought he was the best writer around, and he was very flattered by that. I loved his conversations between his protagonist and mafia guy. They were wonderful conversations. Brilliant. The day in the bleachers came out, we were in a car driving from New York to Sea City Isle to visit Bonnie's mother, who was out there. And we got there, and there was a wire from a friend saying, Rave reviews of a day in the bleachers in the Times and the Trib. Congratulations. And so I found out it had come out, and people liked it. That's still one of my favorite pieces of work, because nobody, to the best of my knowledge, had ever written a book about a single boss event. And the Times and the Trib loved it. And that's still in print. I get a little royalty check every six months. I'm glad I have a fan someplace. What was the last story that you wrote? I'm working on a play. When the guy comes with a new reading machine, I'll be able to do some more writing on it, because it's a good play, but it needs some work. Arnold, I can't tell you how important this conversation has been to me. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for making it easy. God bless you, sir. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the Six Gun Justice website at sixgunjustice.com for information on prior Six Gun Justice conversations, Six Gun Justice speed listens, and full-length episodes of the Six Gun Justice podcast, along with regularly updated book reviews, articles, and interviews covering all aspects of the Western genre. Until next time, be kind to others, be kind to yourself, and keep your masks up. Adios. We're out of here. Let's ride.